though, to look at it with me as we study God's Word. Well, <coughs> as you can see on the screen, um, we are in this series called Missio Dei, uh, The Mission of God. Um, and I want to encourage you to turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. And if you're counting, you may not be, but I, I number all my messages in my series. This is, this is um, message number 25 in the book of Acts. Okay, and, and you all know how many chapters are in the book of Acts, right? Yeah. 28, so, right? So that's where we are. It doesn't mean I won't do a whole... I've done a whole <coughs> chapter in one setting, but you'll be greatly disappointed if that's your expectation this morning. Um, because this morning we're going to be looking at ch chapter 13, verses 1 through 4. We're only going to get through verse 4 this morning. Um, and there's a reason for that, and I'll try to explain that not only this week, but in the weeks ahead as we continue to work through Acts. Um, but the title of this message this morning is, A Model Church. A Model Church. And let me just read these four verses for us, and then we'll ask the Lord to do what only He can do and open our hearts and minds to understand what He's trying to communicate uh, to us this morning. So Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 4. Now there were at Antioch in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Let's pray. Lord, we are at your mercy to understand your word. We understand if you do not move, if you do not open our hearts and our minds to grasp what it is you have to say about yourself, about us, about your work in this world, Lord, we won't understand it. We won't be changed. So, Lord, we pray that you would use your word. Uh, this morning in each of our lives uh, to make us more like Jesus, to prepare us to better fulfill the mission of the church. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to listen closely to the, the, the following story. One Sunday morning in 1865, shortly after the end of the Civil War, a black man entered a fashionable church in Richmond, Virginia. When communion was served, he walked down the aisle and knelt at the altar. A rustle of resentment swept the congregation. How dare he? After all, believers in that church use a common cup. Suddenly, a distinguished layman stood up, stepped forward to the altar, and knelt beside the black man. With Robert E. Lee setting the example, the rest of the congregation soon followed his lead. Wow. Obviously, Robert E. Lee was not perfect. Uh, he, he had plenty of falls. But flaws in his life, but in this instant, he was a model of humility and truth. Now, if you don't know who Robert E. Lee is, he was the leading general of the South, where slavery was alive and well. But shortly after, even during the last few years of, of, of him serving as general, you can go read about his being changed and his understanding of slavery and, and understanding of people who had different colors of skin. It was fascinating to read more about him, uh, even as I, as I saw this example of humility and truth and the model he set for the people in a time that was destructive, in a time when people were still very tense in this church and most of the people there, no way were they going to follow this black man. You know what the common cup is? It's not the little cups we drink out. It's one cup and everybody drinks out of the same cup. 
And they were appalled the, the fact that they would have to drink after this black man. And yet here comes Robert E. Lee. Used to be the bastion of the Confederacy. And now he kneels and sets an example, a model for these people to follow. And, and a model obviously is it's one who, it's an example to be imitated. That's a model. Now it can be good or bad. There's some bad models out there too. We understand that. And it's important in life to look to those who model things that honor the Lord and follow their example. In fact, Paul exhorts us to do this. What he says in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. He's asking them to follow his example. He is modeling something for them as he follows Christ. To follow what I do. To follow my attitude and my heart. Models of Christ-likeness are significant. They're important in our lives. Um, now, for our oldest four children, once they turned 13, they were presented by John L. and I an album. And in that album were letters from people that were significant in their life. We asked them to write a letter to our children. Say, all four of them have one of these. From people who model Christ's likeness in different areas and for them encourage them and write words of encouragement to them and, and, and scripture and those kind of things to help them grow and help them see what, is, what it is to look like a model for Christ. We did that because we want them to look to those people who follow after Christ as models in certain areas of your life to emulate by the grace of God. When it, when it comes to churches... We think about individual models, but when it comes into churches, there's no perfect church. You all understand that, right? This church would be perfect if I weren't its pastor. Okay? So we can just put that out there. Um, or be honest, it, this church would be perfect if none of us were here. Right? And there wouldn't be a church at all. But there's no perfect churches out there. But there are churches that, that serve as a good model for us in, in many different areas. I even think that our church in many areas is a good model in certain areas. There's other areas we need to grow and improve. We need to look, obviously, to the Lord and to His Word, um, that, where we see models of churches that did things well. And, and it's to these types of churches that we want to examine. And we want to look at what they're doing and what they're doing well. And does that align with the Word of God? Well, our passage of Scripture this morning in Acts, is, it contains a model church. Did you hear me notice, notice what I said? A model church. Not the model church. Often when we read the book of Acts, especially early on in the book of Acts, people say, we just need to get back to like it was in the early church. Have you seen some of the things going on in the early church? I mean, they were really mad at each other. They hated, they were ugly to each other. They stole. And they weren't a perfect church. So when people say that, I said, have you read the book of Acts? None of that's in my Bible. But it's a model church in certain areas, and we want to look to it. And I think we would do well to follow their example in the areas that, that are brought up in these four verses and then and following as well. But as we study these four verses, my hope is that we'll be challenged by the example of this church in Antioch, and, and by God's grace, we'll follow their example so that we might be more effective at fulfilling the mission of the church to take the gospel to the nations. Don't, don't we want to be more effective at that? I sure do. And, and, and my guess is everybody in here wants to be more effective at fulfilling that mission. Well, God's given us a great example here, so we would do well to follow after it. So, But after I walk down through these, these four verses and look at the context and all that good stuff, uh, I'm going to come back and, and point out some implications. There's some, there's probably many more than I'll bring up, that we can look to the Lord to help us apply in our life. But again, let's, let's be reminded of Acts 1.8. Acts 1.8 is the outline. 
It's the theme of the book of Acts. And as soon as, as, soon as we would get away from understanding this is the theme of the book of Acts, that's when we'll walk down roads that the book of Acts never teaches. We'll misunderstand what the book is teaching. So if you look here with me, we see that Jesus, he's commissioning his apostles before he ascends to, the hev- to, to, to heaven to be at the right hand of the throne of God. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. And we've seen this worked out, haven't we? In the first 12 chapters, we've seen how this is exactly what happens uh, in, verse, in chapters, 12 through, um, chapters 2 through 7, uh, we see it go to Jerusalem and then on into Judea. All right? Beginning with the day of Pentecost. As the Holy Spirit came and he dwelt b- believers. And it began to spread out into Judea. And then chapters 8 and 9, we saw it get to Samaria. And even a guy going home from worshiping the Lord in Jerusalem from Ethiopia. He went to Ethiopia. And, and then Acts... 12 and chapters 12 and 11 we saw the Gentiles Cornelius and his many people of his friends and his household trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and we see begin to see the, the getting out on the edge a little bit getting close to the remotest parts of the earth that a, a Gentile would come to Christ and then in Acts 12 the Lord through Luke reminds the church at Jerusalem that he's not done with them his power is still working in them he does that purposely because in Acts 13 it's going to go out. And no longer will the center of attention be Jerusalem. It'll be to the remotest part of the earth. That's what we see beginning here. And no longer is Peter the dominant figure. Now Paul is the dominant figure. Obviously God's the dominant figure, but he's the one that God uses through the rest of the book of Acts. So it's important that we see that, and we see this working out of Acts 1.8. Now, um, in order for us to get the gospel out, in order for the church in the beginning to get the gospel out to the remotest part of the earth, there needs to be a community of Christ followers that will reach, build, and send out into the world to the fulfilling of the mission of the church. They'll reach people with the gospel whose lives will be changed. They'll be turned inside out and be converted. They'll be given the Holy Spirit to live in them. They'll build them up. They'll train them. They'll teach them things of the Lord. And teach them to share the gospel. And then to send them out with the blessing of the church. And more importantly, with the calling of God on their life. There needs to be a church like that. And the church, uh, a church that does that well, is presented here in the beginning of chapter 13. Look with me there at verse 1 again of chapter 13. Now there was an Antioch in the church that was there. So here we see that there's a church at Antioch. And the church was, again, a model church, not a perfect church. And we shouldn't be surprised there's a church in Antioch since we were introduced to the birth of this church back in Acts chapter 11. Jewish Christians who were scattered after the murder of Stephen were scattered, and some of them went to Antioch. And in Acts 11.21 says, here's what happened when they came to Antioch. Some of these people in Antioch says, a large number who believed turned to the Lord. So a bunch of people heard the gospel in Antioch. And they believed the gospel to be true. And they turned to the Lord Jesus Christ to be their Lord and their Savior. That's what happened. And all of a sudden this church was birthed. Always be reminded the church is the people. That's what a church is. It's a gathering of Christ followers. And Christ followers are gathering all over this world today. And worshiping the Lord together. But it's this, this, this local church at Antioch. 
Barnabas was sent to Antioch then after that to, to encourage them and to build them up and, and to help them grow in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes and gets, he goes and gets Saul, who's been on hiatus between 9 and 13 years. All right, he's been out ministering in other places. And he gets Saul and he brings him along knowing that he would be perfect fit to help build up the body of Christ at Antioch. And it was at the church at Antioch full of these new Christians. All right, the, 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 these new Christians, they jumped at the chance when they heard the mothership, all right, the mother church in a sense, the church at Jerusalem was struggling because there was a famine in the land. It was serious and they needed help. So these brand new believers, nobody had taken through Dave Ramsey's course yet. And yet something in their heart, because God was in their heart, God had changed them, they heard about a need and they were gracious to the church at Jerusalem. Because it's evidence of the Holy Spirit living inside somebody that they want to be generous. And Barnabas and Saul were sent with this gift to the church from Antioch to, to the church of Jerusalem. And we, we read about this at the end of chapter 12. Look there at verse 25 of chapter 12. It says, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, which was to take this gift from the church of Antioch, taking along with them John, who is also called Mark. So the first thing we see about this model church in Antioch was they were gracious to other believers. That's what we know from, already from the past before we even jump into this passage. Now look again at verse 1 of chapter 13. Now, it says, now there was an Antioch in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius and Cyrene, and Manian, who had been brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. Luke mentions here some specific names of people that were part of this church. And he refers to them as prophets and teachers. They were obviously leaders in the church at Antioch, given to serve the church. The prophets of the New Testament were used... Listen, just, we don't have time to do a whole study on prophets in the New Testament. But let me say this, and I'm going to encourage you to be a Berean. Go study it yourself and see what does the New Testament teach about New Testament prophets. We're not talking about the Old Testament prophets. We're talking about New Testament prophets. So it, it, in, let me just summarize. They were used to give direction from the Lord to the church in practical manners. Listen, not doctrinal manners. There's a big difference. And that's what you see when you, you work through the book of Acts. You see that they're giving direction from the Lord on practical manners. For example, in chapter 11, we've already run into this guy named Agabus. He was a prophet, it says, and he was used by God to warn of the famine. God let him know. Somehow, we don't know exactly how, but he let him know, Agabus, there's a famine coming. Warn people about it. That's a very practical matter. Not a doctrinal matter. God used the apostles and their closest associates to give the doctrinal content from the Lord, which we have now recorded in the 27 books of the New Testament. All right, so, um, but, but then later on in the book of Acts in chapter 21, guess who shows up again? Agabus. And the Lord uses him to practically warn Paul, you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be bound. They're going to put you in prison, basically is what he says. It's a very practical matter. The Lord uses him, this Agabus, this prophet, to warn Paul. Of course, Paul goes ahead, we'll see later, Paul goes ahead and goes because he knows that it's what God has called him to do. And he's, it's not that God's telling him not to go. He's just saying, hey, this is what's going to happen, Paul. And he goes ahead and obeys. So you see that, this is a couple of examples. But if you run that through the New Testament, that's what you see. They give 
direction to the church to serve the church in very practical manners. So again, we don't have time to go into all the details about New Testament prophets because the passage here doesn't as well. But I wanted to give you some of that so you don't think, okay, what are the prophets in the New Testament? In general, that's what um, they do. Also, the New Testament indicates that prophets also helped in the teaching of the church. All right, that was another one of the roles that they played was help in the teaching of the church. So as the church grows and, and, the, and the New Testament period comes to an end, the, 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 the office of an apostle of Jesus fades away because there's no more apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. There, there aren't any more. Now there were apostles of the church, which is different than the New Testament. They were sent messengers by a particular church that went to another church to give them a message, to get, take them a gift. They were messengers. They were sent out. That's what it means. But as far as an apostle of Jesus Christ, we don't have any more. They all died out in the first century. Okay, they're not here anymore. And it seems like when we read the New Testament, the further you go, this office of prophet dies as well. There's, there's no more office of prophet in the sense that they were in the New Testament. A lot of people say, well, the word prophet means to proclaim. It does. But that's not a New Testament prophet. They did proclaim, but they also told things directly from God to the church. It was a miraculous gift. All right? So the, oh, yeah, the office of prophet still exists, not like the New Testament. All right? So we see this, and, and, and they go on, and they're replaced, these leaders, the apostles and the prophets and the teachers. When Paul gets to his epistles, he's writing to particular churches, and he writes to the elders and the deacons. And now here's the leaders in the church as the church grows and, and, and it spreads all over all right, the, the known world at the time and it's kept spreading. Okay? And they, they, they can't seem to take their place as leading the church. But here in Acts 13, it doesn't highlight exactly what the roles and the prophets and the teachers performed here, particularly in Acts 13, but it does highlight something else. Notice the names of the guys who are mentioned. Don't miss this. This is huge. And I think this is what the main point that, that God, uh, through Luke, wants to encourage us with. Look, the word Barnabas, all right? We know that Barnabas is from Cyprus, and his, his name means son of encouragement. And boy, was he a son of encouragement. When no one else wanted anything to do with Saul, guess who shows up and speaks for Saul? Barnabas does. When Saul's been kind of put out to pasture because he got a little too bold and they were going to kill him, so he goes off to Tarsus, kind of his homeland and, and the, the surrounding areas and, and ministering to the Lord there for 9 to 13 years. Guess who goes and gets him? Barnabas. Because Barnabas was a son of encouragement. There's a conflict between him and John Mark. Guess who brings them back together? It's Barnabas because he was a man, a son of encouragement. We see that. Here's Barnabas, alright, from Cyprus. Then we see this guy named Simeon, who was called Niger, all right, and the word Niger is Latin for the word black. Therefore, some say he was from Africa. However, his name is Jewish, all right? So maybe he was an African who came to Jerusalem and he got a Jewish name. We don't know that for sure, but we do know that his skin color was dark enough for them to refer to him as black, right? We don't, again, he may have just been a dark Jew. He may have come from Africa. We're not clear, but hold on. The Africans are not left out because the very next guy, Lucius of Cyrene, Cyrene is where? In North Africa. Here's a North African at part of this church at Antioch. And, and, and Mark, most likely, he had darker skin as well. And then we have this man, man named Manaean uh, who had been brought up in the, in the, with, with Herod the Tetrarch. This guy was raised in Herod's house with Herod the Great. This guy was a man of privilege. And he's now in the church at Antioch. And then, of course, we have this man named Saul who we'll, 
will be later on known as Paul. He has as Jewish of a background as you could possibly have. He says he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin. He goes on and on and on and gives his resume. And if anybody had a resume that says, I'm a Jew, it was Saul. And the Lord, as we saw earlier, changes his heart. And all of a sudden he believes in the Messiah that was promised to the Jewish nation. And he becomes the one who will take the gospel to the world. So look at all those guys. How diverse can you be? Look at all their backgrounds. These shepherds and leaders that the Lord used to jumpstart the taking of the gospel to the remotest part of the world. They're diverse. It spoke of the fact that in the church there would be neither Jew nor Greek, nor slave nor free. But they would all be one under the lordship of Jesus Christ. One big family. Paul calls it later the mystery. The mystery. They couldn't see that all in the Old Testament. And Jesus shows up and changes all that. How they could all come together as one. People were not kept out of church based on their ed education. They weren't kept out of church based upon their religious background. They weren't kept out of the church based upon their skin color or their net worth. They were all welcome. Because this was the body of Christ. This was a picture of the bride of Christ. All who are in Christ by faith were part of this church. And this group of diverse leaders exemplified that truth. The beauty of the gospel is exemplified in the diversity of the church. Do you all realize that? The beauty of the gospel is exemplified in the diversity of the church. I wish some of you all had the opportunity to go to places I've gotten to go to. And to see that. In, in Russia, where they speak this funny language. Nine times. And I love those brothers and sisters in Christ over there. They're different than we are. They are. Not like our government made them all sound like back in the Soviet Union days. Now there are some real bad ones. But there's a lot of people just very similar to us. But different too. I've been to Africa twice. I've been to Uganda. And the people over there are different. In many, many ways. Not just their skin color. They're different. But they're a lot. But when you come together and you have this bond of Jesus Christ. Who lives in you and reigns in you. All of a sudden all that different stuff just, just melts off. And you come together and you worship and you serve together. It's beautiful. Shamefully though, much of the history in the church in the United States has hurt this visible expression of God's mission for the church. Of people from every tribe and language and nation. Here at Grace, everyone who's been made right with God through faith is welcome with open arms. They're welcome here. No matter what their background is, their skin color, their net worth, their education. All are one in Christ. And thankfully we do have some representation from different types of people here in our body. I'm thankful for that. I wish it were more. And we need to keep, keep fighting the battle. I'm not talking about affirmative action. Please don't hear that. I'm going to talk about the gospel action. Which knocks down all those walls and those barriers. The gospel is the answer. Not new rules and laws and re regulations, but the gospel is the answer to get rid of that, 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 that smear on the church here in the United States. And I want us to be a part of that, to keep reaching out to people who are different than us. And it will only happen when we reach out with the gospel to people who are different, to people who God puts in your path. All of us, all of us in here come into contact with people who are different from us every week. Don't we? All of us. Different skin color, sometimes different language, different educational background, different net worth, different religious background. They're different. 
And if God is bringing those people in front of us, we dare not look around them for someone who's more like us. Or we miss what God might have for us. I, I love this. I heard this, I don't know, at a, a marriage retreat probably 15 years ago. John Allen and I, John Allen and I were up in, in the northern part of Illinois with a bunch of coaches and their wives. And this guy said this, Jesus always ministered to the people in front of him. I've never forgotten that. You read the Gospels, that's what he does. He, as he goes, he's just ministering to the people in front of him. He's not looking around him. Oh, there's a Samaritan woman who is kind of a, a woman of the night. Nobody wants to be around her. I'll just go by her. No, he goes right through Samaria. You see that over and over again. And God would call us to follow the example of this church and minister to the people in front of us so that we will exemplify the beauty of the gospel and our diversity even more than we do. What a great witness of the power of the gospel that would be in our community. Well, let's now look at verse 2. While they were ministering in the Lord, to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Notice the opening phrase. While they were ministering, your translation might say worshiping the Lord. And then the word there, ministering or worshiping, it comes from a word, lutero, which has to do with service, but service as an act of worship. We can sometimes just serve for service sake, right? But this is service of an act of worship, often used to speak of the priest in the Old Testament. All ministry and worship should be done, listen to this, it says, to the Lord. Here's a little warning, I think, for us. If our ministry and worship becomes man-centered, we'll compromise and we'll be disappointed. That's a guarantee. If we make the focus the people that we're ministering to, even though that sounds really good, all of a sudden our goal is to meet their need, whatever the perceived need is, to, to do the ministry to them, and we can quickly forget we're doing it to the Lord. If we keep the focus on Him, then we'll really give Him what they need. Him. And we won't compromise. And we won't be disappointed because the Lord will do a work. So just a, a warning and, and an exhortation for us to do ministry to the Lord. It also says that they were fasting. Ooh, that scares some people. Ooh, fasting, that's kind of weird, right? Mysterious. We shouldn't be doing that. Well, we should. No, 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 let me say this. No place in the New Testament are we commanded to fast. Did you know that? Jesus never commands directly even the disciples to fast. He expects it. He assumes they'll be doing that. So an assumption to me sounds close enough to the command to me. All right? Doesn't, it's not direct, but assumes that that's something they'll be doing. So fasting, we don't have time to go into all fasting. There's some really good material out there to read about fasting. But fasting basically says this. You know, I'm going to refrain from physical needs, all right, to go before the Lord in prayer, which will remind me of my spiritual need as my stomach is growling. And I'm reminded I need food to survive. Even more importantly, I need God to survive. I need His direction in my life. I need His power in my life. And we come to God as we pray and fast. And that's what happens. We're reminded of that. And we're, as, as, as those hunger pains come, and that reminder of physical need for food comes, he wants us to point to him. It's not a magical formula. Oh, if you pray and fast, oh yeah, you make sure you fast, and then you say these certain things, and this is going to happen. There's no promise of that in the New Testament. There is a promise, though. We'll get more in tune with what God's doing and humble ourselves and be more connected to him than we would if we don't. So you see, that's what they're doing. They're fasting. They're setting aside this eating and, uh, and this physical need to seek the spiritual need that they have in the Lord. So while they're ministering, worshiping, and they're fasting, Luke writes this. 
The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Somehow, we don't know how. I have no idea how this happened, but it happened. Right? Somehow, the Holy Spirit communicated to the church that he was setting apart Saul and Barnabas for a specific ministry. I don't know how it happened. I just know it happened. It's here. And the Holy Spirit lets them know. It doesn't seem to indicate that they were having a special worship time to discover who was to be sent out. No, no it just says while. It, it's, it meant to, it's, this, this, this is what they're normally doing. This is what the church is doing. They're coming together. They're seeking the Lord. They're fasting. They're praying. They're worshiping. They're serving to the Lord. That's what the church does. And that's what they had been doing in Antioch. And they just, Paul and Barnabas and John Mark come back, and they just keep doing this. They keep being the church. Uh, the text points to them just going about ministry, and then they're called. In the midst of doing God's will for them now, he showed them the next step in his will. As Abraham stepped out in faith and God says, Go, each step of the way he would show him more of his will as he was walking in his will. I love what John MacArthur says about the will of God. There's, he has a little booklet. It's really good. I don't have time to go through all of it. He says this, An important feature in discerning God's will for the future is to do his will in the present. We can't expect God to show us his will for us in the future if we're not doing his will now. And ultimately, his will now will lead us to his will for us in the future. And I would say this, his will now is way more important than his will for us in the future. And yet we can waste a lot of time. Well, in 10 years, I wonder what I'm going to be doing. God show me what I'm going to do in 10 years. I think he's way more concerned than the scripture teaches. I think he's way more concerned with the next 10 minutes. And in the next 10 minutes, in the next 10 minutes, and guess what happened? In 10 years, guess where you'll be? right in the will of God right in the will of God and they're just they're just seeking the will of God and they're just in the will of God and he shows them the next step and it's also important to note here that it's the Holy Spirit who called them to ministry not the church the church didn't call them to ministry the Holy Spirit did and this is emphasized in, in the next two verses look at verses 3 and 4 again then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them they sent them away so being sent out by the Holy Spirit they went down to Seleucia and from there sailed to Cyprus not only did they fast and pray but they also laid their hands on them so what's this mean? let me tell you what it doesn't mean it's not a formal ordination service we call on all the ordained people right, to come in for the ordination service that's not what's happening here think about this Saul and Barnabas had already received the Holy Spirit. They didn't receive the Holy Spirit in laying on hands here. They already had it at their conversion, like all the rest of us get the Holy Spirit. At our conversion, when we come to Christ. All right? They already had it. Second, they had been ministering in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for years before this ever happened. So it's not commissioning them to ministry. It's not that at all. It's not some special thing going on. But both were already doing all these things. It was a way for the church to identify with them and confirm the Lord's call in their life. I love what Kent Hughes says um, when, when he writes about this. He says, It was an expression of the church identification with Barnabas and Saul as they began a work of world evangelism. They were saying, in effect, Brothers, we are with you in this great enterprise. As you go, we go. We're a part of you. We're with you. That's what they were doing in the laying on of hands here. It says in, in verse 3, they sent them away. It literally means they released them or they let them go. Okay? Well, it wasn't necessarily an act of sending. It was, okay, we're releasing. We're letting you go to do what God has called you. It's clear from verse 2 that the Holy Spirit had called them. And in verse 4, he was sending them. Look at verse 4 again. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit. So it was so clear that the only thing the church could do was let them go. 
I mean, who can argue with what the Holy Spirit's doing, what he's call, called them to do? Well, we just let them go. Go for it. Now, think about the temptation here. Look who they're sending out. They're sending out Barnabas and Saul, the guys who had been with them, who are teaching them, who are training them, who had been called by the Lord to come to Antioch with the God, to, to further the gospel ministry that's going on there. They're sending out the best two guys they've got. Temptation would have been, whoa, how about this guy over here? And maybe this guy over here. We'd rather send them out. No. They knew this what God had called them to do. So what else could they do but say, go. We love you. We're with you. Go. And that's what happened here in Acts 13. When the Lord Jesus has called someone to a certain type of ministry uh, for the spreading of the gospel, the church will notice. And the church will release and encourage them in that ministry. Remember this happens as the church daily goes about being the church. Serving, praying, fasting, relying on the Lord in everything that they do. And, and as this takes place, then it becomes much easier to discern what he's up to. Not only in our own lives, but in the lives of those around us. So with this being the case, Barnabas and Saul, look what happens. Right? So the whole, verse 4, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Where is that? All right, maps. The back of the Bible, everybody, I don't like the map part. But it's important to understand what goes on here. We're going to be looking at these maps quite a bit here in the next in Acts because Paul's going to go on three different missionary journeys. And we're going to see the remotest part of the world begin to take place. So, I'll go over here. Here's Antioch. All right, shaky hands, all right. And they come out of Seleucia, which was served as a port for Antioch. And then they sail to Cyprus. Who was from Cyprus? Barnabas. He's going home. And he's taking the gospel home with him. Amazing. All right? And, and you'll see the other places he goes. This is a, he, just, he just gets out there a little bit this time. And actually, that's a long way. But he gets out into these other areas, and we'll see that over the next bit, or bit, bit of time that we have in, in Acts. But here he is. Antioch is about 80 miles south of Seleucia. They go down there. They got on a ship, and they go to Cyprus. Why did they go? Because they were called by God to go. Why did they go? Because God's heart is for the nations. And there's people on the island of Cyprus that needed to hear the gospel. And we'll see that take place. It's not going to be without difficulty, I promise you that. But they will get the gospel to the island of Cyprus. And God will do great works there. Well, no doubt, the church of Antioch was and is a model church in these areas. So I want to encourage us to follow their example of a model church in these areas and I want us to be a model church in these areas for others to look at and I want us to continue to grow in the areas that we need to grow in so we'll be a model of what God would have us to be so let me just give you a few here first of all be gracious to the fulfilling of the mission of the church as we saw the church of Antioch in its emphasis they were gracious with their possessions to help other believers so that they continue to do the work of the ministry where they were called in Jerusalem when the famine came. So I want to encourage us to be a church that's gracious to the fulfilling of the mission of the church. And I'll, I'll say this. I'll tell you what, our church is gracious. We can grow in this, but we are a gracious church. As far as I know, when a need has been expressed, that need has been met in our body. Not only that, but we send out finances all over the world to people so they can help fulfill the mission of church graciously for a church our size. Can we grow in that? You bet. But there's some grace in that. And way to go, Grace Bible Church. 
Let's ask God to make us even more gracious to the filling of the mission of the church. Secondly, embrace the beauty of diversity in fulfilling the mission of the church. Embrace the beauty of the diversity. And when you, God puts people in front of you, no matter what they look like, who they are, minister to that person with the gospel. And may God be pleased to bring that person to a saving faith in Jesus Christ and they be part of the church. So the world will look and say, wow, that can only be explained by God. What, what, what are those two people? I mean, they're like opposites in our world and they're like hugging each other. They're taking care of each other. They're serving each other. And our world will say, those are the people you need to stay away from. But those are exactly the people we need to go to. And watch God use it to the fulfilling of the mission of the church. Thirdly, seek his will in the fulfilling of the mission of the church on a daily basis for, for yourself, just like they were doing here, just as a part of the church. They, they were crying out to God. They were fasting. They were worshiping. They were ministering to the Lord. And as they did this, God continued to show his will for them. Let me encourage us to do the same. Fourthly, encourage others in their call in the fulfilling of the mission of the church. Encourage others in their call. Not just your call, but other people's call. And as you see God call them to a specific type of ministry, encouraging that. Say, go, way to go. Let's go. I'm with you. If you need any help, let me know. Do you need some money? Do you need some time? Do you need me to pray something specifically for what you're doing, what God's called you to? How can I help? That's what they were doing here as they sent off Paul to Saul and Barnabas. Can we do that? And it doesn't mean we're sending people off into a distant land. I hope we do that. But it's just sending people out to Dow Chemical and BASF and our school systems and our neighborhood. Can we encourage each other that way? I think we can. That's what God would call us to do from this model church. Fifthly, Go by God's grace in the fulfilling of the mission of the church. We got to go. We got to move. We got to do what God has called us to do. Take the gospel to the nations, beginning in your home and your neighborhood and in our community and in our state and our nation. And maybe the Lord will call you to go to Africa or Russia or Kazakhstan, Kazakhstan or whatever else. Who knows? But we got to go. We got to go. Just like Paul and Barnabas did. They got on the ship and they went. Well, my prayer is that you are part of his church, his bride. Those who place your faith in Jesus Christ. And if not, I want to exhort you this morning. That you come part of the mission of the church by becoming first part of the church. You hear words like saved. You hear words like faith. Like what in the world does that mean? Saved from what? Well, here's what the Bible teaches. That God, the perfect God... The sovereign of all the universe created mankind. And mankind decided we have a better idea. We don't need you, God. We're going to become God. And all men after that have done the same thing, whether they know it or not. They've refused God's way. And the Bible calls that sin. It says the wages of sin is death, eternal separation from God forever. But God said this, I love you so much, I'm going to send my son Jesus to die in your place, to take your wrath on himself. The wrath that you deserve from me. And he sent Jesus to do just that. To save us from the wrath of God. That's what we need to be saved from. And how do we do that? We hear the word faith. We hear the word trust. We're not talking about trust to go to Houston and back. Or to get on Bellway 8 at 5 o'clock. That's not the kind of trust we're talking about. And mean people, they say, trust in Jesus. That's what they think. I'm going to trust in Jesus for my physical needs. You know, and it's okay to do that. But you need to trust in Jesus as your Savior from sin. That's the biggest issue. Not that you're hungry. 
Not that you're going to run out of gas or get in a wreck. Those are issues, but those aren't the biggest issue. Your biggest issue is you're separated from God because of your sin. And he's made a way that that can be taken, taken care of. You can be forgiven and made right with him by trusting, transferring your trust from yourself to what the Lord Jesus Christ did on, yourself, did, did, did on your behalf so you could be made right with God. That's the church. That's where people who are followers of Christ, they trust in him. My prayer is if you haven't done that, that would happen this morning. And if you've got more questions about that, please let me know. I'll be happy to talk to you about that. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for our time and your word. Thank you for this model church at Antioch. Not the perfect church, but a model church. And Lord, I pray that we would, by your grace, uh, carry out many of the things that they did to the fulfilling of the mission of the church. And Lord, I pray um, again for those here who are not part of your church, that you would do a work in their heart. Or that you would change them from your enemies to your sons and daughters. So they may know the joy of serving you and knowing you. And the freedom of forgiveness of sin. Would help us now as we lift our voices and our hearts to you. In Jesus name. Amen.